today uh, that says dad joke fuel. Uh, I appreciate that. It'll go. I almost have an entire outfit now, the shirt, the socks, and now I got the mug. And uh, I don't have any good dad jokes today, though, uh, in my sermon, unless one just happens, but uh, I, don't, I don't think so. We're, we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark today, though, and we're in chapter 8. We're actually taking verses 22 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, that's, that's the, the passage we're going to study. Did you know that we are already, this is our 28th week in the Gospel of Mark. We are just taking our time through this Gospel. It's an incredible book of the Bible, but that's what we always do, right? In Matthew, we, we spent 100 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. We spent 57 weeks in the Gospel of John. And so it's no surprise that we're crawling through the Gospel of Mark together. And some people see that and they may say something like, wow, why do you guys go so slow through a book of the Bible? And we say to that, why rush? We've got our whole lives to study this word. I don't want to rush through it. This is typically how I retain information. I try to teach like I learn. Um, that's why we need more than one pastor in the world, right? Everybody thinks a little differently, learns a little differently. If I rush through material really fast, I don't tend to retain that information. But if I take my time, uh, sometimes just a line a day or a paragraph a day or a page a day, I tend to, to retain that. And so that's kind of the approach we take with any book of the Bible. But here, here's the deal. I think this is reasonable to say, right? Uh, pretty obvious to say, figuring out Jesus takes time. Figuring out who Jesus is, figuring out the, the, the magnitude uh, of, of what he's done, the person and work of Jesus takes time to make sense. It takes time to understand. And this is the living word of God. This is the living word of God. And so when we go into this Bible over and over throughout our lives, there's something for it, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter how old you are, no matter what's going on in your life, it's ready to minister to us. So right now the children are in the children's ministry studying God's word, and God is cultivating belief there. He's, he's teaching our children through his word what to believe, and there's something for them there. And we can be studying that same exact passage. I don't know what uh, is on the docket for children's ministry today, by the way, but they could be studying the same passage we're studying today, and God would have something for us just like he has something for them. It's the living word in the sense that it's, that it's, it's able to minister to us no matter what. There's a, there's a great quote, and we're not sure who said it. There's a little bit of dispute there. St. Jerome or St. Augustine could have said this, but here it is. The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim without ever touching the bottom. What a, what a beautiful quote, regardless of who said it. It's so true. There's always more to consider. There's always more to learn. There's more to understand. And so it seems like the more you learn about God's word, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I think it's also true to say. With all that being said, we are, we are here on a Sunday morning as a church family coming back to the Gospel of Mark because there's more to gain here. There is more to gain. There's more spiritual nutrients that we all need. This is what sustains and grows our faith, is just is the Spirit's work through His Word. And so we want to bring the gospel into greater focus today. That's my hope for each and every one of us. 
The gospel of Jesus, you know, what we think about Jesus, doesn't it determine everything? What we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that determines everything about us. What you, what you know about Jesus, I think there's a sense in which you can say what you know about Jesus determines really how Christian you actually are. So I, I want to I be Christ-like. I want to know him, and I want you to know him. And I want us all to, as we go into God's word, as we go into the gospel today, we want to grow our understanding. But I, I think that's, that's a work the Spirit does alongside of us. But I want to encourage you to be really intentional today as you look into God's word. Want to grow. Pursue growth. Think about what's being taught. And how we can apply it to our lives. This is a great passage to apply immediately. I think this is a passage of scripture that we can read together today. And immediately apply in a way that's transformative. We're studying about how the disciples are starting to understand Jesus a little better and better. You know, we're in a portion of Mark in which now they've spent some significant time with Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher. They've traveled around, they've heard him speak, they understand his gospel, they've seen him do miracles, they've been empowered to do miracles, they have come to respect his authoritative teaching, and he's even given them permission to speak with similar authority as apostles of his to share his gospel, but they don't understand everything. They're getting closer and closer to to an understanding of the gospel that with great precision, but they're not quite there yet. And so there's some miracles that are taking place around their spiritual growth that kind of serve as kind of parables to understand that spiritual growth. Here's what I mean. Last week when we were studying the gospel of Mark together, the last place we studied was this rebuke. So what's happened most recently in the gospel of Mark is that Jesus had just fed the multitudes for the second time. He fed 5,000 men and their families in Jewish territory. He took five loaves of bread and two fish and miraculously multiplied it to the point in which everybody ate and was satisfied and there was 12 baskets left over. Well, he didn't just do that miracle once. He did it again in Gentile territory where he fed 4,000 men and their families. So upwards of 10, 20,000 people. Families were massive back then. He had a, a handful of bread and fish again and Everyone ate until they were satisfied, and there was seven baskets of leftovers after that miracle. It was incredible. And then just a few days later, this moment that's almost comical to us as we read, they're, they're in the boat crossing uh, uh, or going across the Sea of Galilee again. They're, they're going across that thing all over the place here in the ministry in, in Galilee, northern Israel. They're in the boat, and they're, they're off on another missionary journey to go spread the gospel somewhere, and And what happens is they forget to pack food. They only have one loaf of bread. And so a disciple speaks up and says, oh, no, we only got one loaf of bread. This is after he's fed the multitudes twice. Miraculously, they're concerned about where their next meal is going to come from. So Jesus is like, are you serious? Are you going to doubt like the Pharisees now? Is this real? Are Are you serious? And then he says this really familiar line that sticks in our brains. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? This strong rebuke. Well, of course they have eyeballs, of course they have ears, and they're working just fine. He's he's talking about something spiritual here. Do you not spiritually see? Can you not 
spiritually understand? Are you not hearing the gospel in a spiritual way? Well, on both sides of that familiar rebuke, we have, mir- we have a miracle. On this side, we have a miracle we've already studied. A deaf man is given the ability, miraculously, to hear again. And on this side of that rebuke, the miracle we're going to study today, we have a blind man that is miraculously cured by Jesus, healed in a supernatural way and given sight again. And so this is what I mean when I say these, these miracles serve as a parable to that spiritual growth and understanding that the, the disciples are beginning to develop in their life and need and we all need in our life. That Jesus, his presence gave, the ability, gave people the ability to hear and see who didn't have the ability to hear and see physically. But Jesus' presence also gives people the ability to hear and to see spiritually. That's what we're learning here. So let's, with that in mind... Let's jump in to verse 22. We'll get our bearings here. Chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So we see here that that they're in Bethsaida. This is near Capernaum. I don't have my map up there today. It's all good. (laughs) I got my fake map up here. It's in the northern part of Israel, northern part of the Sea of Galilee, near, near Capernaum where Peter lives, but Bethsaida is actually where Peter is from. We, we see this detail in the Gospel of John that Peter, Andrew, and Philip are from Bethsaida. And so there, the, Bethsaida is a, is a fisherman village. That's, that's the big uh, job there that everyone has. And so it's actually literally Bethsaida, translated literally means house of fishing. And so they're, they're in Bethsaida. And they bring to him a blind man. So they're in Jewish territory again. And when they're in Jewish territory, one of two things tends to happen. Either scribes and Pharisees show up to hassle Jesus, or the masses come to experience another miracle, to hear what Jesus has to say. So his reputation precedes him here. Jesus gets here and people are are bringing those who who need healed. And this is a blind man. They're begging him just... Just touch this blind man, Jesus, and he'll be healed. The, the anticipation, the expectation is, is so great because they've, they've heard and they've seen what Jesus has done before in this area. So they're just begging him to touch this man who is blind. Here's what happens. Let's continue in verses 23 through 26. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he, when he had spit on his eyes... And laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter, do not even enter the village. So this is also similar to what happened with the deaf man. You remember when the... When Jesus encountered the deaf man, he, he was in the midst of a giant crowd, but he took him away privately before he healed this deaf man. And we talked about why. And he, he wanted to communicate. He, he signed to him in many different ways that were obvious to this deaf man that he was about ready to heal him. So just like in that miracle, in this miracle, he led him out of the village to heal him so that he could have a more intimate setting a more private setting to heal this man. That's unique, isn't it? 
That's unique. This is one of those details that I think is important to, to, to point out. Most of the time when Jesus does a miracle, it's, in, it's out in the wide open. Everyone's there to see it. It's, it's publicly known. He's not trying to hide anything. But now, some different factors are at play. We've been talking about that the last several weeks, too. So now, he, he, he knows that people have the wrong idea about him. There's all of these pressures going on. He takes this blind man away out of the, uh, out of the village to, to show compassion on him and heal him for the same reasons he did with the deaf man. And, you know, in certain areas, you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing up, trying to hassle him. He, he, he's exhausted by that. You got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're showing up demanding a miracle, do this, do that. They're, they're showing up, when, he do, when they do witness a miracle, they credit the miracle to Satan, to Beelzebub. Jesus is exhausted by that, but he doesn't want those things to get in the way of showing compassion on those people who need him. And so he takes the man aside and heals him in private. He spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, again with the spit. This is also similar to the miracle of the deaf man. If you remember, Jesus spit. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus spit or why he spit, but spit was involved. It's involved in three miracles in the New Testament. We know that Jesus spit when he healed the deaf man, possibly to spit on his hands and clean him off before he touched his tongue because he was also a mute. And then there's uh, a situation in John chapter 9, you can read that there in verse 6, where Jesus spits on the ground, he makes some mud and puts it in the blind man's eyes. That was a different situation, and then tells him to go wash his eyes and he's healed. And then this situation, in which he spits directly into the eyes of this blind man. Why does he spit? Why all the spit? I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't really know. Um, uh, but it, there's a few things to consider here. Um, we, know what we, we know that he doesn't have to spit on the man's eyes. There's nothing magical about the spit. Jesus heals people in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes when Jesus heals someone, he touches them physically and they're healed. Sometimes they come and touch him, right? Remember the lady who bled for 12 years and she was like, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And she did. She, she got a, a finger on the hem of his garment. She touched him and, and she was healed. Sometimes that's how it works. Other times, Jesus heals someone and he's not even in the vicinity of that person. They're, they're, they're somewhere else in a different village or a different place, and he just commands that they are healed, and they are healed. And so he heals people in all sorts of different ways, and, and so we, we can't believe that there is anything magical or anything like that about the spit, but nonetheless, it's, it's given to us in detail here in Mark. Now, here's one aspect of this that scholars, if you go read in the commentaries as I do every week, I'm always curious what they have to say. And it's, it's hard to find a good answer in there either, but several scholars will say, well, in this part of the world, in this time, there was a lot of cultural beliefs that existed that, for whatever reason, just like they do today, we have strange cultural beliefs in our culture. Well, they had strange cultural beliefs in their culture and in that time. And one of those strange beliefs was that the spit of a holy man had healing powers. That was just like a general belief that... Pagans had, some Jews had, and, and it just existed in that time. And so some scholars think, well, well, Jesus understood that they had that belief. This man was blind, 
And so in the same way he was trying to communicate to that deaf man in a special way that he would understand he was about to be healed by touching him, by sticking his fingers in his ears, and by touching his tongue, he's communicating to this blind man in a special way that he would also anticipate that healing and start to build an expectation that he was going to be healed by spitting in his eyes and understanding that that man had a cultural understanding, whether it be true or not or have any significance or not, it did to that man. I don't know. But the fact that he did spit in his eyes and the fact that this played out in the way that it did, it creates one of the most unique miracles in the entire New Testament. If you look at every miracle of Jesus, here's what you'll find. Everyone except this one. Every single miracle of Jesus except this one happens instantaneously. He says the word and it's done. He touches, it's done. Someone touches him, it's done. But in this miracle, did you notice there was two stages of healing? That doesn't happen with any other miracle. Stage one, he spits in his eyes and he asks him, do you see anything? Isn't that strange? The man answers, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. What's that mean? He's not seeing very good. <laughs> right? There's light getting in. Do you see anything yet? Uh, well, I, I, I see people. It's like trees walking around. He has incredibly blurry vision. That's stage one. Isn't that strange? Every other miracle, instantly, they are healed. But this one happens in two stages. Stage two, he lays hands on him again, and he opened his, opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. In stage two, it's emphasized how clear he can see everything. Perfect 2020 vision. Why two stages? Isn't that just weird? There has to be a reason. There has to be a reason why there was two stages to this miracle, but not any other miracle. What is that reason? Well, uh, we, again, we can rule out some things. We know that it's not because Jesus didn't have as much healing power that day, right? He wasn't running out of healing power like, you know, Popeye when he feels weak because he hasn't had spinach in a while. That's not what's happening here. That's not biblical truth. It isn't that Jesus didn't have the ability. It's not like Jesus, I mean, think of all the miracles Jesus has done up to this point. He's raised people from the dead. He's fed the, the multitudes by miraculously creating food that wasn't there before. He's healed a paralytic. He's cast out demons. He's done all of these things instantly, miraculously, but this point in time, it takes two stages. So it doesn't make any sense that he's like, oh, let me give it a shot. Ooh, almost did it. Let me try again, like Mr. Miyagi or something. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. It wouldn't make any sense to believe that Jesus couldn't completely heal this man on the first try. He did it in two stages for a reason, and here's the reason I think it is. I think this reason is so that it could serve as an object lesson to the disciples in that moment who weren't seeing who Jesus was in complete clarity yet. And I think that same object lesson is for you and I here today. All of us grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. Because understanding Jesus takes time. Some people are in complete and total darkness when it comes to Jesus. 
Some people have a, a blurry understanding of who Jesus is. And other people, by God's grace, have a real clear understanding of who Jesus is. So in the text, what do we see? We see the scribes and the Pharisees are living in complete and total darkness. Spiritually, they don't have eyes. Spiritually, spiritually speaking, their ears don't work, right? They hassle Jesus wherever he goes. They credit Satan with his ability to cast out demons. They demand miracles. They're awful to Jesus. They are completely in the dark when it comes to understanding Jesus as the Messiah. But the disciples, well, they're not in total darkness, but they're not seeing in 2020 vision either, right? So many things and so many moments happen with Jesus that leave them scratching their head. They don't completely get it. Like they recognize the, the compassion that he shows both Jews and Gentiles. They, they recognize this incredible gospel message that he keeps teaching people. They recognize the godliness in the life of Christ. But sometimes he does things that they don't know how to process or they just need time to process. I mean, can you imagine being in a storm, fearing for your life, almost to the point of death? You're getting buckets to, to get water out before you sink and die. What do they say to Jesus? Jesus, do you even care? What are you doing? Help us, help us live here. Jesus rebukes the storm. And what's their response? Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're scratching their head like, who is this guy? It's not, everything's not in complete focus yet when it comes to the disciples. When he, multi when he multiplies the bread and the fish, Mark goes out of his way to tell us that these moments that happen, like on the water, are to bring into greater clarity about the bread and the fish. He, he, he tells us in, in verse 52 of chapter 6 that they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves and the fish. And so the, the disciples don't completely understand Jesus. And we're going to see next week when we study uh, uh, this moment between Peter and Jesus, like Jesus rebukes Peter after he, you know, he's, he's growing in his understanding. He rebukes Peter um, and, and, and says, get behind me, Satan. They don't fully understand. So the disciples, they're like blind men after that they're like that blind man after the first stage. They see, they see Jesus. He's like this mighty oak tree or something walking around. But they, they, they truly don't understand the significance or the magnitude of what it means to be the Christ. But he doesn't leave them there. He's still working on them. He's still teaching them. And their understanding of Jesus is growing over time. Let's pick up in verse 27. Watch it grow. 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I want you to think about those two questions this morning. You know, every, every Sunday morning when we come to the journey, I encourage you to be intentional about repentance. Be intentional, intentional about your growth and, and your understanding of God's word. Do you, do you want to be convicted today? Sometimes we go to church and we leave and we, we felt no conviction whatsoever. Do you want to be convicted? Are you inviting conviction in your life? Do you want the Holy Spirit to work on you and to change you and to transform you? Well, here's a moment that you can apply immediately 
to invite conviction into your life. Just ask yourself the same two questions that Jesus asks his disciples. Those same two questions you can apply to your life right now, and it is so profitable to do so. What's question number one? Who do people say that I am? People say all sorts of stuff about Jesus, right? There's more books written about Jesus than any other person that's ever existed. And they say all sorts of things, and they say contradictory things. They say crazy things. But who, who, do, who do people say that Jesus is? We get a lot of ideas swirling around in our minds concerning that, right? Well, in Jesus' day, here was the answer. They had a lot of things swirling around about Jesus then, too. Some say John the Baptist. Now, we know King Herod had that idea, right? King Herod executed John the Baptist. We studied that moment in Scripture. And after he executed John the Baptist, and then time goes by, he starts to hear about the ministry of Jesus and the popularity of Jesus. King Herod draws the conclusion, oh, wait a second, this must be John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And that made him nervous. So some people had that. A lot of, a lot of Herodians subscribed to that idea. Other people said, maybe he's Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, or a prophet like like one of those guys is kind of how they phrase it, one of the prophets. And again, it's the same thing happens in our day that happens in their day, just in a different way. What do people say about Jesus in our day? He's one of the greats. Even, even atheists, scholars, he's one of the greats. He's a great teacher. He, he was a, vision, a revolutionary, a visionary, a great leader. He was really talented. He could lead people in a significant, mighty way. Of course, if that's all you think about Jesus, you've fallen woefully short of who he actually is, right? If that's all you believe about Jesus, you're still in the dark. So that brings us to contemplate question number two, and I really want you to ask yourself this question today. Who do you say I am? That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Who do you say I am? We know what everybody else says. We're experts on what everybody else says, aren't we? We're, we're, we live in the information age. We're saturated with what everybody thinks 24-7. We subject ourselves to social media, so anytime anything happens, we, we know all about it. We know what every single person thinks about every little last thing. We're experts in what our culture believes and understands, especially when it comes to Jesus. We're getting thoughts about Jesus poured into our minds 24-7, even if we never go to church. Every TV program you watch, They'll take his name in vain 20 times, or they'll find some way to incorporate some vague Christian belief and distort that belief and, to, and put it in their program just to touch a nerve or to, you know, uh, relate to our culture. And so we're being educated about Jesus 24-7. But who do you say Jesus is? Peter's answer was very specific. You are the Christ. Well, see, now he's starting to see things more clearly. Now he's starting to resemble that blind man in stage two of that healing with 20-20 vision. You are the Christ. Now, a lot of times when I'm in Mark, what do I do? I, I reference Matthew or, or Luke or John because these moments exist in multiple Gospels, and this is a moment that exists also in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, as he often does, gives us a few more details than Mark. Everybody seems to give more details than Mark because he's the immediately Gospel. He's getting through this Gospel message quickly. But Matthew takes his time to really give us a lot more detail. And so Peter's answer in Matthew has an additional line. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, that's something more significant than a great leader, isn't it? 
we're also given Jesus' response back to Peter. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter after that moment. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because we know he wasn't called Peter yet. His name was Simon. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want to read that again because that's a really, really important line. Listen to what Jesus says. Think about what he's saying right here. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What an important statement. This statement brings me so much relief in so many ways. So Peter, he's starting to see things spiritually in a way that he was unable to before. Why? Because a miracle happened. A miracle happened. Jesus says, you're not able to see this because of anything that's happened in this world. You're able to see this because of my Father in heaven. He's revealed this to you. That's how you've been able to have this spiritual understanding. And so this, this is the same for every one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus as the Christ, if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, if you believe your, these things in your heart, the world didn't teach that to you. Culture didn't teach that to you. You didn't learn that on social media or Netflix. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, he has revealed that to you. A miracle has happened. In the same way that that deaf man and the blind man physically could not see, but because of the presence of Jesus in their life healing them, they could physically see. In the same way that's true, people that are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf are able to have that sight and have that spiritual hearing because of the presence of Jesus. That's what we're being taught. If you believe that Jesus is your Savior, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's because God has intervened in your life. And given you that awareness. He's given you that ability to believe that. A miracle has happened. God taught you that. That's why you believe that. So in Matthew, something else happens too. We're given this, this additional line. Again, another thing that Jesus said right after this moment. It's right after this moment that Simon's name changes to Peter. Remember, his name is Simon Barjona. But Jesus gives him the name Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he's building the church not on the apostle Peter. He's building the church on the confession that Peter made. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Jesus builds his church on. That's what church is about. If you want to participate in church, it has to be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The confession that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. That's what church is about. When Jesus talks about church, that's the point. We, we you know, say all sorts of things about church and claim church is all sorts of different things, but that's actually at the heart of what church is. We've gathered here for a lot of reasons today, but the main reason has to be about a confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. So when you think about that, who do you say Jesus is? Is that who you say Jesus is? Do you believe he is the Messiah, the Christ? What does that even mean? What does it mean to you that he is the Christ? Aren't those intimidating questions? Like if you're just walking down the street and someone drops those questions on you, it can be very scary. 
What do you really believe about that? Because what you believe about those things really will t- determine everything about you. It'll determine everything about your faith, what it looks like, what it feels like, how it plays out in life. What do you believe about those things? I would, I would guess, and I think this is a pretty good guess, right? That none of us in here have perfect doctrine. I would guess that each and every one of us, if we went to answer those questions today, we would be all over the place. Because understanding Jesus takes time. It takes time, and we're all somewhere in that spectrum of understanding. Some of us, when we think about Jesus and we're, when we're put on the spot, asked about what it means that Jesus is the Christ, and if I believe that Jesus is the Christ, we may live in this tension of faith and doubt. We're, we're pretty sure, we're kind of sure, but you know, we look for evidence in our life and we may get discouraged or we may look at evidence in our life and be encouraged. Well, where are you at on that? Well, maybe for some of you in here today, when you think about Jesus as the Christ, you know, he's like this mighty oak tree. You know it's a good thing. You can, there's light getting in. You can see that something's there that's, that means something, and it's important, and it's real. But you don't know it in great detail. You don't know it with precision. Well, I'm here to tell you today, you're in great company because none of us in here have all the answers. Not a single one of us in here has every single one of the answers. But we gather each and every week to get another piece of that answer. We don't rush through the Bible as fast as we can to claim that we read it all and understand it all just for the sake of knowledge. We go line by line, paragraph by paragraph, moment by moment, trying to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And we're trying to understand what that means. Well, Jesus is about ready to go into great detail as to what that means. It all centers around his life, death, and resurrection. And whenever he starts to teach that to the disciples, again, that we'll get into next week, whenever he starts to teach that to the disciples, Peter's like, no. Peter starts to argue with him about what it means to be the Christ, about what it means, what his Messiahship means and how it's going to play out. He starts to argue with him, and then Jesus rebukes him in the most famous way, the famous rebuke in the in scripture, get behind me Satan! I bet you he didn't challenge him the next time he starts talking about that, right? <laughs> That'll shut down that argument. But this belief that we have, even if there's a little bit of light getting in, you know this is, you know that Jesus is the Christ. You might be able, not be able to, to understand every last little dot and tittle of the, of the gospel, but you know that's there. Hey, you're in, you're in great company. This is why we do this. This is why we do this. So that more light can get in. So that more understanding can be had. And so that we can gather around this confession in a way that changes us. And we do this with communion. Because it all centers around his life, death, and resurrection. His life is symbolized by that bread. We take that bread each and every week because Jesus was sinless. When we confess that he is the Christ, part of that confession is that he was without sin. That's way different than you and I. we got sin all over our lives. But when we put faith in his sinlessness, it's that, it's that righteousness that's imputed to us through that faith. And so when we are standing before God someday, we're seen as righteous. Not because of us, because of Jesus. We, we take that juice to remember his blood shed on the cross, his death. It's about the confession of his death and what it means that his death 
paid the penalty for our sins. He wasn't paying the penalty for his sins. He didn't have any sins. He was paying the penalty for our sins. We got a ton of sins in our past, in our present, and we got sins in our future we don't even know about yet, but they're there. He paid the penalty for all of it. And we take that bread and that juice to remember that confession that saves us. That's how we can know we are a believer, even if we don't have every detail figured out. We're going to keep coming back to God's word, and we're going to take another chunk next week. So let's pray, and we'll take communion together. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you show us in our fallen understanding of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you intervene in our life to give us this belief. If we were left to ourselves just to figure out who you are, we would be left in darkness. None of us could figure out who you are in a saving way apart from you. Lord, so we are so grateful that you send us your spirit to gift us that belief in a way that saves us in a way that we can understand you, understand you progressively. We, we don't get it all right, but Lord, gathering by gathering and moment by moment in your word, we can bring that understanding into greater and greater focus. Lord, we're somewhere in the middle of those two stages today, seeing you blurry or seeing you with clarity. But Lord, I pray that today, from one degree to the next, we've been transformed. That each and every person in here from the from the children in the, in the children's ministry to the oldest person here in this congregation, Lord, that all of us moved one degree. Lord, that we can be more like you, that we can share in your godliness, and that we can proclaim your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.